tonight's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I would judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, uh, good evening, everyone. And um, thanks for having me back. It's nice to be back. Um, I've missed you guys whilst I was away. Uh, we've been having lots of fun, sleepless nights over the last few weeks, but my boy Zach is doing well. Catherine's recovering well. Looking forward to introducing him to you at some point in the not-too-distant future, hopefully. And, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's great to be back for the end of uh, this series because, uh, th for me, this has been one of the most enjoyable and most, I think, rewarding uh, s studies of God's Word that I think I've done with you in my time here at WBC. So what a way to finish it off tonight. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for energy because, uh, spoilers, I'm really tired and um, I don't want to do you guys uh, an injustice. But So let me pray for God's help. Let's pray for God's help for you as well that we'd uh, all be able to understand what we're reading tonight. Let's pray. Uh, God of all grace, um, Lord, we pray that you please be with us now uh, for each one of us, what we need right in this moment, energy, concentration, uh, for being free from distraction, give us ears to hear, Father, what you're saying to us in your word tonight, because we want to be people who live by faith. Uh, we want to believe and obey what you tell us to, and we need your help to do that, because we know that our hearts naturally are inclined away from you. So please help us, uh, Lord, to listen well tonight, uh, to, to believe what you're saying to us and to put it into practice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, one of the... Um, silver linings to 2020, if you could call it that, was the fact that all of us, I think, for the most part, had a lot of extra time on our hands in 2020. Uh, we spent a lot of time just kind of twiddling our thumbs, right? Just waiting for the eventual return to normalcy that we hoped for. And uh, as Grace has already mentioned, many of us had great ideas about what we were going to do with that time, great grand plans to be productive during 2020. 
Uh, I heard uh, last year that uh, in the very first weekend of lockdown in March, about this time last year, that Bunnings sold more paint in that first weekend of lockdown than they normally do in the entirety of the summer, right? That tells you something. That's a statistic that tells a story. Because what it means was we all saw that we're going to have a lot of time on our hands, so let's put it to use. Let's be productive. Let's do that bathroom renovation that we've been putting off for years, right? We wanted to, to make use of the waiting. And so I wonder, what did you do with your time on your hands, with the delay, with the waiting? Did you, were you productive? Did you make good use of it? Did you learn that skill that, you know, the one you've always thought you'd want to do? Do you know how to juggle now? Is that you? Did you make it through that list of books that's been stacking up on your bedside table over the last couple of years? You put a dent in it at all. Uh, Mike, who's playing guitar tonight, told me that he hand-built that guitar amp during lockdown, lockdown project. Did you have one of those? Were you productive? Or, despite your best intentions, did you wind up like most of us, which was that by the end of the years, we had hit that stage of lethargy and fatigue from all of the waiting. We were just sick of the delay, I think, for the most part, by the end of it. Uh, I, I heard a statistic this week that in 2020, the average user of Netflix, their consumption went up by 50% in 2020. You were all watching 50% more Netflix than you normally do. That's what you did with 2020. Sadly, that's true for a lot of us, isn't it? We just wasted the time. Despite the best intentions, we weren't actually as interested in being productive as we thought we were. And so maybe you're thinking, right now, you just you feel relieved. I Honestly, I feel a bit relieved being back here tonight, singing. It almost feels like normal, doesn't it? Just kind of going back to the way things were. No more waiting to return to normalcy. This is normal now, right? Well, if that's you, if you are starting to feel relieved, what I want to do is just not let you off the hook quite so quickly because, uh, sadly, it would be a mistake. If you're a Christian here tonight, it would be a mistake to think that, you're done with waiting, waiting for that eventual return to normalcy, that life that you've been longing for. No more waiting for you. If that's what you think, I'm here to burst your bubble. Because one of the most significant facts of the Christian faith is that we are people who wait. We are in a time of delay. We are people who have our eyes fixed on a future day, a day when the Lord Jesus will return. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. And we've been seeing that fact, that fundamental fact of the Christian faith play out time and time again in this series, in Luke chapter 17 to 19. Jesus has spoken about that fact, that there is a day coming when he will return. You remember all the way back in chapter 17, verse 22, you remember what Jesus said? He said, the, days are, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it, right? What are we in right now? We are day, in days of longing, days of delay, days of waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. It is one of the most significant facts of the Christian faith and, let's be honest, it's one of the most challenging aspects to our faith as well, isn't it? Because it's, it's really easy to mistake the absence of Jesus here today, to mistake this delay for the non-existence of Jesus. Maybe, may, I don't know everybody in this room, it may well be if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, that the conclusion you've come to is, well, you know, Christians always talk about Jesus and he's the king of the universe and whatever, but I don't see it. You know, look around, where is Jesus' kingdom? There's no throne somewhere on earth where Jesus is sitting on it. And so, look, if he was, you know, a little bit more visible, okay, maybe, maybe I'd, I'd actually believe in him, but this absence, this delay, sure looks a lot like non-existence. Maybe that's the conclusion you've come to. 
Certainly, this delay is difficult for Christians to deal with too. Uh, I personally have lost count of the number of friends that I have who started out following Jesus and who have thrown in the towel along the way. And I reckon if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know people in that category too. Now, each, each unique individual who's in that category, somebody who started out as a Christian and is no longer doing it, I'm sure they've all got their own unique story, their own unique circumstances, I grant you that, but I reckon there's something common for everybody in that category, and that is that they just got sick of waiting. The the slog of the Christian life, putting in those hard yards until that final day, until heaven, well, it just wasn't worth it for them anymore, so they threw in the towel. I think that's a pretty common denominator for people, that the delay was what defeated them. And you know, even if you are a Christian here today and you've, you're someone who's got no intention of giving up on Jesus, uh, then let's be honest, you can from time to time begin to wonder, well, you know, is this, is this wait really going to be worth it? The, the, the marathon of the Christian life is long and it's hard and it's tiring. And it's quite possible that you are feeling tired of waiting, tired of serving Jesus year on year. You look around and you don't see much evidence of Jesus returning, you know. The kingdom doesn't seem to be growing. The world seems to be going from bad to worse. Your friends, your family don't seem to be softening to the gospel. And so the longer you wait, the more you ask the question, well, am I on a fool's errand as a Christian? This wait that I'm supposedly on. You have to wrestle with the question because it's a reality of the Christian faith. What do you do with the delay? What do you do with the delay that you find yourself in until Jesus returns? That's the question that we are wrestling with in this passage tonight. It's the question that Jesus is addressing with this little story, this hypothetical story, this parable that he puts together for this crowd. Because you see, this crowd that Jesus is speaking to in chapter 19, it's a crowd of people who thought that the kingdom of God was going to arrive immediately. Have a look at verse 11 again with me. While they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, right? So here is Jesus. He's on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, Tension has been building for years in Jesus' life. This guy who claimed to be the Messiah, he's coming to the capital city of Israel. He's going to have a showdown with the Roman authorities. What's going to happen? It's going to be combustible. People thought that this was the moment at which King Jesus would take his throne and start to rule over Israel again. And do you remember, if you were here last week, we saw that story of Zacchaeus, the small man in the tree that Jesus calls down, calls into the kingdom. Remember the punchline of that story? What does Jesus say about Zacchaeus? He says, today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come. And so if you were there watching this, hearing these words from Jesus, well, you could be mistaken, I think, for imagining that salvation is right around the corner, the kingdom of God. Jesus is about to arrive at Jerusalem. Surely this is the moment, right? And now I do want to say, of course, in one sense, the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is now. It's in our midst as lost sinners are being rescued out of the rule of Satan and sin and death and being forgiven, being adopted into God's family. The kingdom of God is now, but significantly, it is also not yet. There is one full and final day going to come when the absolute revelation of God's kingdom will happen and Jesus will be seen by all and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That day is 
is in the future. And so Jesus is going to tell them a story to reset their expectations a little bit for his followers. He wants to tell them to just pump the brakes a little bit, that there is going to be a delay in the kingdom of God. It's not going to arrive immediately, fully. And he wants to teach them, as as he explains this to them, what to do with that delay. The story that he tells is, um, is quite a simple sort of premise, simple story in one sense. It's a nobleman who goes off to a distant country to be installed as the king and then he returns. And I grant you that's a bit of a strange premise for you and I. We don't see that kind of thing happening in our world. But as Jesus spoke this into ancient Israel, that was actually not a far-fetched premise at all. It had happened twice within the lifetime of the people listening. Both Herod the Great and his son, Archelaus, when they were to be made kings over Judea, they had to leave and go to Rome because Rome's the imperial power. They would go and be installed as king and then come back with power granted to them by Rome. And so as Jesus tells this story, his listeners are connecting the dots. Okay, I can, I can understand the paradigm here. And it's actually quite simple to interpret the story on another level, isn't it? The, the meaning is obvious. The characters in the story, they're not all that enigmatic. It's obvious that Jesus is depicting himself as the nobleman, uh, the one who is about to be enthroned as king, which is what happens when he gets to Jerusalem in his death and resurrection. He is made king. The servants in the story, they represent the people who follow Jesus, his disciples. And the subjects, the ones who hate the nobleman, hate the king to be, well, that's meant to be a depiction of Israel, the ones who've rejected King Jesus. And the tension in the story, really, the dramatic tension revolves around this delay between when the king is identified and when he is installed in power. When he goes to receive power, when he comes back in power. You could think of it perhaps a bit like the US elections a few, years ago, a few months ago. Remember the elections in November, which found out who was going to be president, but it wasn't until the inauguration in January until he actually received power. And so there's a period of waiting, a period of in-between time. The question is, what's going to happen in that in-between time? How do you navigate that period? And in the story, the king-to-be, he entrusts his servants with some of his riches. So what is going to happen in this delay? I think there are two main lessons that Jesus is trying to teach here with this story. Two main lessons for us to grapple with as we live in the delay. And the first lesson is this, that this delay that we find ourselves in, it is an unparalleled opportunity. Right now, these days, until Jesus returns, it is an unparalleled opportunity. So let's have a look at the first two servants in the story. So let's read from verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, You take charge of five cities. Now, they're really interesting characters, really interesting little interactions here. And it can be really tempting as a reader of this story to kind of zoom in and just focus on these two and to start kind of considering what the differences are between these two servants because you've got this this 10 mina servant who becomes a 10 city reward servant and you've got this five mina servant who becomes a five city reward servant 
And so maybe as you read that, you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, like when the king returns, he's going to give different rewards to Christians. Jesus is going to reward us differently when he returns. And uh, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true, I suppose. Uh, certainly, uh, there are many great Christian thinkers, theologians, who have thought and argued and taught that over the centuries. And they've used this parable as one of the key texts to explain why that might be the case. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'm not particularly convinced that that's the point that this parable is trying to make, that there will be different levels of rewards for Christians when they come back, when Jesus comes back. And the reason I'm not convinced is because, for starters, this is a parable. And in a parable, the rule of thumb when you're reading it is you're not supposed to press the details too, too firmly. It's the big picture that is the point when you read a parable. But more than that, in this parable, those first two servants, you're not actually supposed to differentiate between them and compare and contrast them. No, you're supposed to view them together because there is something that these two servants have in common. You see, the thing that these two servants, servants have in common is that they understood that this delay presented them with an unparalleled opportunity. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think, first of all, these servants have understood the immense privilege that it is to serve the man that they know will be the king. I mean, regardless of whatever it is that the king gets them to do, the work they do, regardless of the outcome of their work, regardless of whether they are paid or rewarded for the work that they do, it is a high dignity to be a trusted servant of the king in waiting. There are people who make it their life's ambition in this world to serve the most powerful and the most influential leaders that they can attach themselves to. And so just to be the servant of the man that you know will one day be king, well, that's already an extraordinary opportunity, isn't it? Someone I know uh, has been a political staffer for several relatively high-ranking Labor politicians. This friend of mine whenever their politician that they're working for has lost an election, which has happened a number of times, the disappointment to my friend is immense uh, because the realisation comes crashing down on them that all of their work over the months and years leading up to it to try and get this person elected, it's all been for nothing. It's all been a complete waste of time. It's amounted to nothing. They've backed the wrong horse. But you see, a life spent in the service of this king is not a life wasted. Because this man will be king. His rule, his reign is certain. But more than that, there is also then the privilege of the work that the king gets them to do. In verse 13, he tells them, put this money to work. Now, again, I think this is one of the details as, as you read this parable. You're not supposed to kind of press this detail too much in the parable. I don't think the parable is trying to explain what the work is that his servants do. But I think you can understand it from the broader context of Luke's gospel. If the nobleman is Jesus, if the servants are his followers, well, what is the work that King Jesus entrusts to his followers on earth? What is it that he gets them to do time and time again throughout the gospel? It's obvious, isn't it? Do you remember back in, in chapter 9, Jesus commissions his 12 disciples to go out and to proclaim good news of the kingdom of God. Then the next chapter, chapter 10, he gets 72 disciples and he commissions them to go out and to proclaim a message that the kingdom of God has come near. And then right at the end of the gospel, after his death and resurrection, the risen, resurrected Jesus, he gives a commission to all disciples for all time to go and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. 
He's telling them to make an announcement that there is good news of forgiveness, of clemency for any sinner, for any enemy of God who turns back to him. If they just turn back, they will find forgiveness. They will find restoration. They will find rescue. It's the work, you see, of making disciples. That's the work that Jesus gives to his followers, the work of making his gospel known to the world. These servants, they know who the king is. And even though he's yet to start governing, they have the opportunity to be about the master's work, to be growing his assets in the meantime. What a privilege that is. Think about it from from the reverse of this, right? Whilst the king is away in that distant country, before he's yet to return, there are hordes of people who are going to be living out their lives, going about their work, giving themselves to enterprises, that when this new regime comes in, it is going to sweep them all away and all of their efforts will be lost to history. But these servants, they've been given a task that will still have meaning when the king returns. They've been given the opportunity to invest in a kingdom that will never pass away. They're serving the man who they know will be king. They're engaged in a task that contributes to that future kingdom, even before it's arrived. And then also, on top of that, why is this opportunity so unparalleled? Well, it's because of the immense reward that the master offers his servants, right? That's the thing that should strike you as you read this parable, really, more than anything else, is just how out of proportion the reward is that the master gives to his servants for their work. Do you know, you may not know, but a, a mina, that term that's thrown around here, it's the equivalent of three months' uh, wages for a farm labourer. Uh, so ten minas is, is not, it, it's not like a life-changing sum of money. Now, if you're a uni student, you might be begging to differ at that point, but... It's not, it's not a, that consequential a sum of money, especially when you consider who it is who has entrusted that money to them, right? Put yourself in the shoes of a servant to the Queen of England, right? The Queen, the royal family, their estimated net worth is $88 billion, hot fact. And so imagine that the Queen entrusts you, servant, with $5,000, right? Go and put it to work. And somehow, <laughs> through, you know wise investment, you turn that into $50,000. You invest in GameStop or Dogecoin or something. $50,000 later, well done you. That's impressive. But it's not really a drop in the bucket for an $88 billion value uh, high net worth individual, is it? So imagine that the queen came to you. She returned and she, she looked at what you'd done. She said, $50,000. That is marvellous. Do you know what? You, you can keep that. And whilst you're at it, do you want to look after New Zealand for me? Because that's the equivalent of the kind of reward that this master gives to their servants. It is completely out of proportion to the work that they do. And yet, friend, we laugh, but that is what Jesus says he will do for us if we are faithful with what he gives us in this life. It creates an unparalleled opportunity, an opportunity to be about kingdom work in this life before anybody else on this earth has cottoned on to the fact that there even is a new kingdom coming. It's the privilege of serving the master of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the prospect of a reward that is out of all proportion to the work that we do now. That's why this is such an unparalleled opportunity. And I reckon, I reckon friends, that we need to hear that at a time like this. 
because we're at kind of a tired point of a tired year after a very tiring year. You know, we've come out of the gates hot, or as hot as we can, to start off 2021, try and get things back on track. But maybe at this point, <laughs> Easter's around the corner, you've got one week of school left, uni break coming up. Maybe your energy for ministry, your energy for serving, your energy for, for missions, just kind of ebbing away a little bit. Many of us, on top of that, many of I'll be the first to admit, we're in a tired stage of life. Many of us are not sleeping very well at the moment. Work is busy, family is busy, health is fading. And so just maybe that, that kind of the marathon of that Christian life has got you down. It's dragging on for too long. We're sick of the waiting. We're not even completely sure, if we're honest, that the kingdom that we're waiting for is going to happen. And if that is us, if that's how you're feeling tonight, friends, then I want to encourage you. Jesus wants to encourage you. He wants you to remember that his kingdom will certainly come. It will certainly be worth it. It is the most extraordinary privilege to serve the man who will be king. So I guess what you've got to wrestle with tonight is to think for yourself, well, what is it that this, the master has given me? Whatever it is, my time, my energy, my intellect, my, my platform that he's given me, my gifts, my money. We are to use whatever it is that the king has given us in his service to be about his work of seeking and saving the lost, of making disciples, contributing to that mission, however it is that we contribute. I'm not telling you that we all have to be frontline evangelists, but we do all, if we serve the king, have to contribute to his work in this world. Even if we are used up, spent, emptied in this life by that task... It will be worth it in the end, won't it? What are we to do with the delay? First of all, we see it as an unparalleled opportunity. But actually, I think the real kind of target of this story, this parable, is not those first two servants. Because remember, Jesus is speaking here to a crowd of people who are not prepared for the delay that is going to happen. And so I think, actually, this parable is told for the benefit of that third servant, the servant who's unprepared. You see, what Jesus wants to say to those people who are not prepared for the delay is that they've got to recognise, secondly, that this delay presents an unexpected danger. This delay presents an unexpected danger. So let's have a read what happens with this third servant. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? And he said to those standing by, take his meaner away from him. Give it to the one who has ten meaners. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now, perhaps as, as some of you read that interaction with this third servant, you feel a little bit sympathetic towards him. Because, I mean, let's be honest, here's a guy who just finds the king's work a little bit too difficult. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe he thinks he's not really kind of wired for the thing that the king is asking him to do. You know, maybe he's a bit shy, a bit timid, a bit not really gifted at lost-seeking. And so he just buries the mina. Well, it's not a terrible course of action. At least that way he's going to have that to give back to the master when he gets back. 
And yet the severe master, when he shows back up, he rips it away from him, gives it to the guy who's already blessed with an abundance, and he kicks this servant out. I mean, the master seems really harsh. You can feel sympathetic, can't you, for this third servant? Well, if you're feeling that, friends, then please see through the excuses of this third servant. Uh, What is going on here is is so self-evidently an excuse. This is, of course, nonsense, what this third servant is, is saying here. Because let's imagine for a minute that this servant is right. Let's imagine that the master is a hard man. Well, then there's no way that the servant actually lived as if that was the case, as if he believed what he said. That's the master's point in verse 23. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? You know, if the master really does reap where he didn't sow, then the least you could do is put his money on deposit so you've got something extra to give him because you know he's a hard man. And of course, he's wrong about the master, isn't he? The master has proven himself to the first two servants not to be a hard man, but to be a lavishly generous man. He gives rewards that are out of all proportion to the labour that's been done. And so don't give the third servant too much credit. Don't sympathise with him too much. Because what's going on here is that he is guilty of straightforward disobedience. That's what it is. The master gave him a clear command and he chose not to obey it. It's not that he tried to obey it, lost the money and came away empty-handed and he was scolded for it. No, he did the one course of action that guaranteed that his master would receive no return on his investment. He took no action. It's shameful, isn't it? Because, you know, regardless of whether his master is actually going to be made the king, regardless of whether that trip to the foreign country goes well or not, who is this man? He's a servant to that man already. He is to do what the master tells him to do. It demonstrates, I think, that this servant doesn't understand himself. He doesn't understand his master either as that generous man that he is. And ultimately, what we're to see here is that this is an act of unbelief. The reason why the third servant does what he does is because he lacks belief. That's the only real explanation that this servant has. Why else would you take the master's money, do nothing with it, get on with other projects and other ambitions in your life if you didn't expect that master to come back? That's the only explanation. The delay, you see, of this king returning, the delay has trapped him. It's exposed him for the fraud that he is. See, it's not just those enemies of the king who are going to be exposed and dealt with at the end of the story. No, it's the servants of the king, at least the ones who claim to be servants of the king, but who have no faith in him, no desire to obey him at all. They're also going to be exposed at the return of this king. And so this delay, it is dangerous, you see, because it means the true colours of every servant will be shown. Every single one. There are going to be some people who are associated with the master, who claim to follow him, but they are going to be shown to be, in the master's own words, wicked, faithless. And they will end up empty-handed. Now, that's a a warning to the crowds that Jesus is speaking to here. These fair-weather friends who are following Jesus when times are good, but they're going to abandon him within the week when he gets to Jerusalem. It's a warning to them, but, friends, hear it. It's a warning to us as well. Just because you are part of a church community, just because you are one of the crowd, it does not automatically make you 
a servant of the king. What makes you a servant of the king is whether you are going to serve that king. What are you doing with the delay? Verse 26, he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This delay that we find ourselves in, friends, it presents to us an unparalleled opportunity, but also an unexpected danger. So the question is, what in these days that you find yourself in, are these going to be a time for you to maximise the assets of your master or are they going to be a time for you to squander them? What are you doing in the master's absence? That's the question before each one of us today. Given that we have the privilege of serving this king, will we maximise his assets? Given that we understand our master's business, will we seek and save the lost? Given that he is so generous at bestowing gifts and riches to all who call on him, will we be full-blooded in our service of this master? I've said to you already that I don't think that the, the point of this parable is to explain to us exactly what that service and what that work looks like. But I I don't think it's also the point of this parable to get us to assess exactly how much we are serving this king in his absence. I mean, it's true that if if the master is this generous, then you would be crazy not to give your everything in service of him. Why why would you not do that if this master is so generous, right? Uh, But we actually don't know how much of themselves the first two servants gave in service of the master, do we? The story doesn't tell us. Were they using every waking hour of their lives to be about the master's business? We don't know. Did they have other projects and other responsibilities in other corners of their lives? Maybe. We don't know. The point of this parable is not how much will you serve the king, but whether you will serve the king at all. Will you take his delay as an opportunity to procrastinate? As an opportunity to give your life to other things? To give up on the kingdom altogether? Or will you keep serving him? It's possible that there are people here tonight, I don't know all of you, possible that some of you are not Christians. And you might like to think that you would serve Jesus if only he were a little bit more obvious, a little bit more visible. I mean, he seems relatively competent, uh, much more compassionate uh, as a leader, at least compared to what passes for political leadership these days. And so you think, well, if there was a kingdom of Jesus somewhere in the earth, if Jesus was there, if his throne was there, I would, I think, go and bow the knee to him. But as it is in his absence, well, you excuse yourself and you say there's just no compelling reason to be a Christian. Well, Jesus told this parable for people like you. You see, the kingdom of God will surely come. It is coming, friends. Verse 15 He was made king, however, and returned home. That day is coming. And if you want to be a part of his kingdom at all, you need to serve the king in his absence. It's possible, maybe, that you're someone here tonight who calls themselves a Christian, uh, you know, because you've been associated with Christian things for a long time. Maybe somewhere in ages past, you responded to an altar call at some evangelistic event. You, You ticked yes for Jesus one day in the past. But since then, you've, you know, it hasn't really had much bearing on your life. Well, this parable was spoken for people like you. Jesus says, if you want to be a part of his kingdom, you need to serve him in his absence. 
it's possible that you're a, a, someone here tonight who's a Christian and, and you are, you've been a Christian for years, but you're feeling tired at this point. You're tempted perhaps to, to bury your asset in the ground and to get on with other things, more immediate things in your life. And Jesus told this parable for you. You need to understand that this delay is not a reason to lose heart or to redirect your focus onto other ambitions. It is an opportunity to serve the king in his absence. It's probable, I think, for all of us, every single one of us, that from time to time we feel like losing heart. You know, this Christian life, we've, we've been waiting and waiting for Jesus to arrive. We begin to wonder, is it really worth serving an absentee master? What are we supposed to do with this delay? It's been really good for my soul this week to come and sit with this passage for a while and to remember and to, to be recommitted in my attitude that I am a servant of the King. Whatever it looks like in all of my life, I'm here to serve my master. I'm here to spend myself in his service. How about you? You see, because it is an unparalleled opportunity, because there is an unexpected danger, because the Lord Jesus is lavishly generous, because his work is utterly worthwhile, because the lost are there to be sought and saved, because the reward is unimaginable out of all proportion to anything you could do in this life. What you are to do in the delay, friends, please, is serve the king in his absence. He was made king however, and returned home. And he sent for his servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And yet we confess to you, Lord, that too often we are tempted to, to shirk that burden, that responsibility to be in your service in this life. We lose sight of the immense privilege it is to belong to you, the one who will sit on the throne of heaven for all eternity. We lose sight of your generosity that you have shown to us time and time again lose sight of the immense privilege it is to contribute to an eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. And so please forgive us for this short-sightedness, Lord. Please renew us. Give us a conviction to spend our lives in your service because, Lord, you spent your life for us. You poured out your life unto death to make us belong to you. Please remind us of that privilege tonight. Everybody here, Lord, I pray, please do not let anybody leave this room without bending their knee to you, without confessing that you are the Lord and that we are just your servants.